Welcome to From the Heart with Don Lister Sheher, Daniel Grimm, he him, and today's special guest, Ju Tio. We are so excited, as always, to speak to this week's guest. We're so blessed with the people we get to talk to. I'm eternally grateful. I've just finished Ju's book, Qigong in Yoga Teaching and Practice. And um, I kind of picked it up thinking, how is he even going to be able to explain this huge topic? Um, and you really do such a great job. It's just wonderful. So if it's something you're interested in, I really recommend rushing out and buying it. Um, and it works for me as a teacher on that level. And also, I think if you were a complete novice, you would glean so much information. It's a really rich book. So super Super encourage people to buy it. Um, Ju is a yoga teacher and a Qigong teacher. He's also author of the book. He lives in Normandy. I've been to Normandy. I taught a retreat there once. It was very, very pretty. And he has his own farmhouse where he runs retreats. I'm going to go. So um, I'm going to get him to put that in the show notes. So you guys who are listening, if you fancy a retreat with Ju, then I would so recommend it. Um, and apparently has goats, bees and dogs. So it's all just sounding a bit idyllic to me. Welcome. Lovely to have you on the podcast. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much for having me, Dawn. Thank you, Daniel. Um, hello, I'm Jew. And yes, I live in France and I've got dogs and bees and hens and goats. And I'm looking out at sort of acres of pasture that belongs to my neighbor um, who's uh, an organic dairy farmer wow oh my god you're living the dream in a way yes um i when, when i first moved out here i suddenly remembered uh, some notes i made in a diary while on retreat about 10 years ago about how i wanted my own retreat center and i totally forgot it I, I sketched it out and all that, and I totally forgot about it. And suddenly when I got here, oh, gosh, I didn't want a retreat center once in my past. And it was nice to see how that had manifest. Yeah. As let's, uh, let's talk about that a little bit more in a bit, because um, I have a few um, questions about this. But first, Daniel, how are you doing? Tell me what's going on in your world. Hi, Dawn. Hi, Ju. Um, lovely to be here both with you today. Um, yeah, all, all's going well in, in my world. Um, I've got a holiday coming up in a couple of weeks, so I'm in that kind of frantic stage before going on holiday, trying to get as many emails and things crossed off lists as I can do. <laughs> so I'm kind of working quite long days at the moment, um, but really looking forward to having a break. Um what else have I been doing? Not, not very much, like, nothing particularly exciting. Um, I did start, I don't know if anyone has watched it. Um, I know I talk about TV quite a lot, but it's something that me and my husband really enjoy doing together. But we've just started season three of Succession. I don't know if anyone's seen that, but it is amazing. It's so good. <laughs> um, I would highly recommend watching it. Um, it's a program which is all about um, a media tycoon family who is very closely based on other media tycoon families that you can probably work out who it is <laughs> in America. <laughs> um, but it's just an amazing 
program about people really and how they are deeply decisive deeply kind of pulled by money and power and it's a really really great program to watch um it's quite difficult to watch because it's cringeworthy some of the ways that they act around each other and considering they're supposed to be a family how that much backstabbing and sort of double jeopardy is going on behind the scenes so it's well worth watching um it, it, it's 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 kind of one of those programs where you're sort of like this is so close to the truth that actually it's uncomfortable to watch <laughs> but i would thoroughly recommend it <laughs> have you I seen it like have you seen it Joe? you you nodding your head no i've heard i've read lots about it but i've not seen it i'm i'm knee deep in this is us at the moment season four oh wow i had to stop watching that because i kept crying it was <laughs> just so emotional <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't cope with it <laughs> Oh my god! Season one, I cried all the way. My husband actually thought I was having a was being triggered. I was beside myself. It's incredible, isn't it? It's the, some of the best TV ever made, don't you think? So good, so good. Yeah, so so real, so believable. Just sucks you in. Yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't watch um, things that feel too close to real um, life if they're disturbing, like Succession. I watched that for a few episodes, and I just thought, this is the worst side of human nature. I don't want to see it. And it's a bit like Benidorm was very close to my upbringing. So I, can't, I watched one episode of Benidorm. I went, no, this is like my childhood, along with Shameless, not watching it. it that is deeply triggered. So um, I like to watch things that, I can, that are so ridiculous. It's mm. unbelievable. But my favourite programme of all time that I'm kind of watching for the third time now is Shit's Creek. So good. Shit's, have you seen it? Shit's Creek's brilliant. It is. Absolutely it's very brilliant. funny. Dan Levy, I love you. Please come on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have that. amazing. I love, I love Dan Levy <laughs> Isn't it amazing how much energy is in storytelling? Yes. Yes. And the things that they do to us, and we can watch something and we can physically change. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I remember watching Shit's Creek because I watched the whole lot through lockdown. Um, I watched the first season when it very, quite early on, like a few years ago, and I was just like, oh, I don't get this. It feels a bit, I'm always a bit, skeptical around American comedy because I'm kind of like oh it feels a bit beige and a bit kind of you know there's no depth to it sometimes and actually you know Shit's Creek was completely wrong because actually there was a lot of depth to it you just needed to get through the first sort of season of setting it out but actually I I was I read an article with Stevie who played Dan Levy's best friend and she was talking about that moment in the supermarket where he was describing his sexuality around a bottle of wine. And she was saying, well, do you like red wine or white wine? And he said, well, I like all wines. And I was like, oh, my God, that was like almost for a defining moment for me. That's how me coming or understanding pansexuality was like, it was almost like a bit of a light bulb moment. And then 
weirdly, I read about Stevie and she identifies now as pansexual as well. And I was like, oh, my God, she she allowed me to understand that within myself. And actually, she was having that realisation by playing that part. And I was like, how amazing is that? You know, what a powerful programme. <laughs> it really does have, TV has the ability to really open up stuff inside us, you know, and to start conversations about things and make us more aware. It, it can be used for good or for bad so much. I'm trying to find the thing I watched this week because I've been obviously, as our listeners may know, I tore my hamstring last week. And um, toward the tendon as well, got a bruise, a black bruise down the back of my leg. It's disgusting, actually. So I've sat on my bed for a week with an ice pack watching Netflix. I can't find it. But there's a really cool thing um, about a man in American Indian who moved to India to set up a school for people who are in the caste system. And it's specifically about the women or the, the girls, the program is around the girls, or girls and boys go to this school. And he takes one child per family, only one child, up to 12 children per school year, and he brings them into the school and they live there. They only go home for holidays, and they are fed and they're looked after, but the emphasis is on their education. So the idea is if I can educate these kids and get them through college, they can then break the chain of the caste system by going out and earning proper money and then they can help the school and then they can help the family and my first thought when I watched the first episode was wow this is incredible and what an amazing thing to do and it is an amazing thing to do but then as you watch through the episodes it's really very hard on the children because of the sense of responsibility that they they've got to achieve top grades they've you know and that they don't really have a choice or like one of them wanted to become an artist. And it's like, you know, that's not really going to pay back this school and it's not going to help your family out of poverty. And so then there's this huge conflict within them. And it was very heartwarming. It was heartbreaking because, I mean, the caste system's banned in India now, but it's still a thing. Like if you're darker skinned or your family is part of what was once considered to be a caste, you're still, you know, you can't, it's harder to get married you aren't getting the opportunity to get education. You know, it's the, it's, you still don't have rights in the way that you're supposed to. It's just, it was absolutely fascinating and heartbreaking to watch. I can't remember the name of it. I will find it. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, it's on Netflix. So check it out. Really, really good. And there's, you can donate money to the school and, you know, support them. And the kind of the way we do, Daniel, with the Incredible Hope Foundation that helps people in Kolkata. Um, and the children there so yes it was really really interesting but it kind of just when you look at that it kind of the the horror that some people are still having to live through it just it, it's like a leveler I feel like it's a leveler you kind of look at your own life and you think you know what I've got absolutely zero to whinge about and also it just makes you want to be kinder like this whole man's life was just about kindness and trying to help people he kind of He'd had a really great company, a Fortune 500 company, and sold it. And he basically put all his money into like building this school, which and then it all went, you know, within 10 years it went because that's what happens. And now it's run through donations. But yeah, really, really, really incredible um, piece of TV worth seeing. Let's get off the subject of TV and into the subject of why we're here, which is discuss 
your incredible book, which has gone out into the world and is going to do some amazing stuff, I'm sure. So tell us a little bit about how you came to be teaching Hatha and Qigong and how you came to be on this path that you're on now. Completely by accident. I mean, I I'd started doing yoga as a kid with my mum because we used to do Jane Fonda's workout together. And a lot of Jane Fonda's workout is Yogasana, if you were to mm. go through the 1984 videos. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure are still in my parents' house on VHS somewhere. But um, um, yes, yeah, so I was doing shoulder stands of age eight or 10 with my mum on the living room floor. Um, but then as I got older, I tried all sorts of different styles of yoga. I did lots of um, hot yoga as, as cardio and weight loss. And then eventually one day in 2006, I walked into a studio, I was living in Beijing and I walked into a studio and this woman called Mimi was teaching the class. And, um, and she was an amazing teacher and I kept going back and, and became one of her very loyal students. And a few months after that, at that studio, uh, an American teacher was running workshops um, and Mimi suggested that I check out his workshops. And that's when I met Matthew Cohen, um, who was my first Qigong teacher. Uh, yeah, an American from California coming to China to teach yoga ended up being my Qigong teacher. You know, there, 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 there is, there's, there's no, there's no, nothing predictable about that story. But um, yeah, that's how I ended up um, doing my first teacher training with Matthew. And then eventually I also did teacher training with Matt Strom after that. And I, I became a teacher. I started assisting Mimi in her classes and some of the teachers at the studio. And then I started teaching at that studio in Beijing. That was 2007. And I've been teaching ever since. Yeah. Amazing. Um, it's amazing how our life can just and, suddenly and turn. I love it. I love it. I never thought that I would end up being a yoga teacher or teach Qigong or meditation or be hosting retreats or I never ever intended to, to become a, a, a yoga teacher. I was living a very um, charged life in the corporate world and advertising and in marketing for many, many years. And then I, you know, life led me onto the yoga mat and my life changed as a result. And I couldn't not teach. Mm. It was so compelling. Um, it was so clear that if I could experience the benefits of this practice, everybody needs to, as many people as I can touch needs to benefit from this practice because the healing that I have received and experienced through it is relevant and needed by most people. Mm. So that's how I ended up becoming a teacher. And as for the book, um, I was approached by the series editor, Sean O'Neill, um, in probably 2019 sometime. Um, she asked me if I would be willing to write this book as part of a yoga teaching series. Um, 
and it was such an exciting opportunity um and also very daunting because it's a huge topic and i didn't really know how to start but i sort of forced myself to focus really and 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 write it in a way that anybody could pick it up and understand what qigong is even though it's targeted at yoga teachers i think the only shortcuts in the book are probably in references to certain yoga poses which most yoga teachers would be able to understand but everything else in there i've really even down to the pronunciation of the chinese words i've done away with all the typical academic literary um styles of 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 teaching the pronunciation and done my own sort of pronunciation guide to some of the chinese words i i really want it to be something that anybody can pick up and get something out of it no matter how advanced or or how new they are to the practice yeah well thank you that's really interesting so you were in the corporate world before and then you found yoga or yoga found you and you said something that a lot of people say so i'd like to just pick up on that you said i felt like i couldn't not teach something changed within within me and the benefits were so great i just had to share what what do you think that thing is that in your opinion i'm sure everybody will have something different to say that happens when we're doing this kind of practice that creates this change within us well, I remember the moment I felt the change in me, which was to really understand what forgiveness was and what kindness was towards mm. myself. Mm. Um, and that moment of suddenly being okay with who I was mm. and, and being okay with everything that was going on in my life at that time. And the drama just disappeared there wasn't this knot around everything that was going on in my life mm. and there was no other way to explain it other than this was what was i was experiencing during the practice mm. and each time i came back to the practice there was that feeling again each time i came back to the practice it became easier to access that version of me or that part of my life or that part of my psyche mm. and i left the room just more just a nicer person i think to myself mm. and to to other people in my life so mm. yeah that that was the difficult thing to explain and for a lot of my friends at the time who were going through similar things also through yoga and my sort of teacher training cohort and all that we often had to we often joke that you know we have to almost lie to our friends and family so that they don't think we joined some cult <laughs> because we leave feeling so amazing and we're much nicer afterwards um <laughs> um but that's that's how that's the only really compelling reason like gosh if this can make me be so much more okay with who i am be so much kinder so much more at ease as a human being surely this must be useful for other people too you're so right and i i just i'm i'm going to dig a little deeper and you can tell Please. me to go if you like i'm going to say what do you think 
happens in the practice that creates that change, that self-acceptance? Because I know exactly what you're talking about. The, my belief is that when we're doing this practice, there is a degree of surrender in that we acknowledge the tradition and the years and these, the thousands of years that are woven into these practices. We are not just taking a posture that somebody taught us two minutes ago. We are taking the posture that has been tried and tested and endured thousands of years. Mm. It's something that is so powerful and potent, useful, however, you know, whatever words you want to describe it as. Somebody thought it was good enough to continue teaching it. Mm. And that, and, and that belief that this is good enough to keep teaching it has endured for thousands of years. So there's an immediate tapping in to that, that, that continuity in energy across time and space and generations of wisdom that is beyond our current lifetime, beyond our current ability to understand, you know, how, how somebody somewhere at some point decided that moving the body this way made a difference they carved it on the wall of a cave more people were told about it more people did it clearly more people thought that it was also useful and how you know and we'll never know how it continued and this is just asana Mm. then there's you know no, no 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 question about all the other things that were transmuted or passed down through other forms um all the other forms of yoga that are there at some point they were all then brought together to say now this is a holistic practice and we can match all these things together and and, and here you go um here's a way of being in its entirety obviously it's much better documented than how i've just described it um but starting the practice coming into the practice taking that first breath taking that first gesture whether it's qigong or yoga there is a sense of okay now i'm stepping into a practice that is much greater than what i can understand now mm. and that in me invokes a sense of surrender a sense of humility and of a willingness to accept what's coming mm beyond my sort of conscious understanding. Mm. This movement, this posture, this exercise might be called something and we might have learned that it's supposed to do A, B, C, D, E, but there'll be other things going on as well that we may not understand and we'll never know and be never mm. be able to articulate. But it's that stepping into the openness and receptivity of the benefits that I think changes me. Mm. I love the word you used, um, surrender. For me, I think that's a huge part of my practice. And eventually, for I can only speak from my voice, but the continual going over and over the practices and finding a safety in them gave me the space to practice surrender. And when we surrender, 
we're no longer in that state of fight and flight and high anxiety and hypervigilance. Mm. And then we in that place open up to, to our full capacity as human beings and as spiritual beings, or at least that was my experience. I'm sure everybody finds it in their own way, but there is interesting, isn't it? There is something about the practice of yoga, meditation, Qigong, that really allows us to become our full expressions of who we are, who we're, I want to say who we were meant to be, but that assumes that somebody had made that decision for us. And that's not quite what I'm saying, but you know, our potential perhaps. Daniel, I can see you, you want to jump in, please. I was, yeah, I was just reflecting upon what G said and yourself Dawn around. I remember having this realization that everything I needed to know was there already. I just didn't know how to understand it or process it. And by putting trust in practices, as Drew was saying, around the a time, you know, time tested and feeling like you're part of something that stretches beyond the concept of what our brains could ever even imagine allowed me personally to be able to then tap into that truth within myself and by tapping into that truth then it's allowed me to become the expression of the person who I feel I deserve to be rather than one that has to put on masks or hats to pretend to be something different in society Mm. Mm. that's so interesting isn't it we could talk about this for hours I want to I want to um talk about qigong there so <laughs> maybe these things will come together there's so many questions i have um for our listeners and for me tell us and for daniel tell us what qigong is what can you explain a little bit about that practice well qigong is an uh bringing together of various practices um that stimulate the flow of energy and Qi is a Chinese word, obviously originated, the practice originated in China. Um, Qi means energy or life form, um, life force. Um, The character, the traditional character in Chinese breaks down into components that mean the combustion of grains and a moment of of, uh, evaporation. So there is that motion and capacity and potential that has been transformed that's implied in the word qi. Um, But in common usage, it means energy. And gong is the discipline, um, the work, the toil that goes into harnessing and cultivating energy. Mm -hmm. And they were called various other things. Um, and then at some point they were all grouped together and put under the umbrella of the phrase Qigong. And it's a series of exercises which were taught uh, differently in various parts of China, um, different styles, um, given different names, but they were predominantly do um, practice to 
clean the body, cleanse the body, re-energize the body um, through movement, through breath. Um, what I find particularly interesting about Qigong, however, is there is an acknowledgement of the physical limitations in approaching the practice. The texts state very clearly, very, there is a, a very clear acknowledgement that as bodies age, physical capacities change. So what you can and well, what you should or should not do in inverted commas with the body should be adjusted accordingly to the actual physical age. Um, and there are different practices for um, biological males, biological females, obviously at the time it was either male, female, and that was the division. And, and it was really interesting. It was very pragmatic um, and very practical in, in how the, the practices were laid out at the time. So that's what Qigong is. And it's vast because the phrase is used to describe a whole range of exercises that are still being taught predominantly orally in many parts of China. You can walk into any Chinese town, any Chinese city, and there will be some class of Tai Chi or Qigong happening. And the movements of, of Qigong, the, the exercises commonly used in a Qigong class these days form the foundations of many other types of exercises like Tai Chi, other forms um, of martial arts and self-defense. So it, I often describe it as the foundational exercises of many Asian martial arts. Wow. When did, um, when did Qigong first begin? What's the history of it? You know, I, I was, when I was reading your book, it's something that's been in my mind a long time. It's like, there's a lot of crossovers, isn't there, with Qigong and acupuncture and these different things. They seem to interlink you know how how did somebody discover that these kind of forms were going to be helpful is there any history around qigong oh around huge that? amounts huge amounts of history and and i'm no academic historian on the practice that's for sure but one of the earliest expressions dates back is, is the neidu uh, which is a, a drawing of various physical exercises that dates back to, I think, something like 200 BC or something like that. I'm probably getting it completely wrong, but off the top of my head, um, I should probably know this better than I do. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's one of the earliest expressions of it. There's naturally an overlap with Chinese medicine, which is a much wider subject as well, although Qigong does sit very nicely alongside Chinese medicine. Because mm. you're a practicing acupuncturist also, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yeah. Yes. Daniel, I can see you want to hop in there. I just wanted to understand the relationship between Qigong and Tai Chi. Okay. Because you mentioned them both in, in your sort of in that opening um, conversation and art. it's it, their practices that I know very little about. So it'd be really interesting to understand how they sort of relate to each other and where they, where they sit. So Tai Chi, uh, I would use the equivalent of like, there are 
postures, there's asana in yoga, and then there's the Ashtanga primary series, secondary series, etc. So Tai Chi would be the series, and asana postures would be the Qigong. So it is the way that the movements have been sequenced together that make up the various Tai Chi forms. Right. Okay. Okay. And uh, and Qigong is one level below that, and well, not below, but you know, one less, one step back, and that it's more about the fundamental movements that will stimulate the flow of energy. Okay. Whereas Tai Chi is that coordination of the movement and the meridian that the energy runs through. Is that correct? It's a set sequence. Yeah. So Tai Chi, yeah. the Tai Chi practices have set sequences. Could you explain you... a little bit about the meridians? Yeah. Well, so there are, generally speaking, there are 12, there are, there are 12, 12 meridians, each corresponding to each organ system. Um, there is the heart meridian and small intestine meridian, the bladder, the kidneys, the pericardium, and the triple heater, which is the only meridian that does not relate to a natural physical organ in Chinese medicine. It's more of a function than the gallbladder and the liver, the lungs and the large intestine, and the stomach and the spleen. So these are the 12 organ systems that are associated with meridians in Chinese medicine. There are two other big ones that are often used in Chinese medicine, and that's the conception vessel and the governing vessel that run up and down the spine in the, at a central level. There are some other lines that are often described and used. Um, there are six others that run through the body, but they're not so frequently um, used as, as it were. So these 14 tend to be the more generally used and referenced meridian points. There are close to 370 acupuncture points along all these meridians um, throughout the body. The meridians are equal on both sides of the body, apart from the governor vessel and the conception vessel that run up and down the center of the body. And the points where we often touch for, in acupuncture with needles or acupressure, those are the points called doorways where there is an opening in the body where the energy comes higher up to the level of the skin. Some meridian lines run very deep in the body, close to the bone, where we would never be able to get to with a needle. And each of these points has been assigned a name and, and more recently a number to, to make it a little bit more consistent through the different styles of acupuncture and the documentation of these points. And the names are quite evocative sometimes and very, very pragmatic some of the time. And it's through um, some really wonderful books out on the market now um, through, uh, through which I've managed to also provide a lot more color and meaning to some of the points and the exercises that relate to some of these points. Mm. When I was um, checking out your, some of the chapters was discussing meridians, they can, it's really, there's such, such a strong correspondence to our yoga practice, isn't there? The two kind of really do sit together. And um, I'm going to ask you to speak, speak more about that, but it, it was just fascinating. It's like a meridian point opens up a whole world behind it, doesn't it? Yeah. 
Mm. So not not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, energetically. And maybe correct me if I'm wrong, um, but also perhaps in terms of our, our so- social situation, you know, something happening in a meridian or a blockage there could be indicative of stuff that's happening in, a, in and around our life. So uh, external factors affecting the meridian also. So was, is that correct? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I think the, the thing I love about Chinese medicine is it starts with the premise that we are absolutely connected to our environment and we cannot separate the body into various parts and we cannot separate the living that happens through our body with everything that's happening around us. Mm. So if we have a headache, there is a pain in the head, but it is also related to what's happening in the rest of the body and what's happening around us at that point in time. Mm. So while one way could be you know, to take a blood thinner and reduce the pressure in the head and therefore reduce the physical pain of it, Chinese medicine would say, well, what else is happening that is also building up that pressure? Mm. And, and it's through thousands of years as well of, of um, study and, exper- and experimentation that has led to this well knowledge about the potential of each point along each of these meridians. And a lot of the, the way I was taught, at least, when you come to an acupuncture for an acupuncture treatment, a lot of time is given into talking about, well, what's going on? What's going on in your life? What's happening? with other aspects of your body, with your relationships, um, the things that may not be um, immediately identified as why your back might be hurting, but which might be contributing to how you are being in a human being and in your body that is causing the pain in your back, for example. So, and, and through that discussion, then I would then be able to better guide the treatment towards treating the person and the life holistically, not just the body and the pain. I think that's fascinating because what what you've just described there is how I was described to somebody about yoga therapy and how you'd use various different yogic models like the koshas, the doshas, the chakras, the prana values, which actually are probably quite relevant to the chi running through the body and the meridians running through the body. But actually, you know, using those as almost like ways to detect what's going on within someone by understanding holistically who they are <laughs> and their stresses and strains and, you know, what they what they do to themselves all gets done to them on a day-to-day basis, you know, and then how that plays out in their physical, mental, emotional, spiritual connection with themselves. I really agree. There's so many commonalities. The more I look into this, the more I see there's so many common areas in how Qigong and Chinese medicine approach life and the human body as what's taught in, in yoga. Because this idea of of separation, of being this separate entity that is independent is is, is a falsehood and the cause of so much pain and suffering. Because the minute we realize that our well-being is related to what is around us, the, the, the easier it becomes to heal whatever it is that needs to be healed. 
by addressing what's around us, by recognizing um, the energy that, that is impacting us through the conversations that we have, through the people that we're living in, through the light mm -hmm. that we're living with, um, all those things make a difference. And the, the concept that, no, I am this me and everything else is external is causing so much damage. Mm. Our environment has a huge impact doesn't it on our well-being physically emotionally mentally and I, I I'm not gonna lie sometimes lately I've started to feel a little bit overwhelmed by how powerless we are around you know things like how what they put in our food like even if you choose to eat for instance organic food which let's be frank unless you're in a very privileged position you can't afford to do I mean, I'm quite comfortably off and I can't afford to eat purely organic food. Mm. Um, you, even if that, you don't know, like, the field next to you, if, if that food's covered in crap. You know, even if you surround yourself with comfortable, you know, positive people who are kind and uplifting and are working on themselves, you know, we are still going to encounter people that are very negative and having difficulties in their life and, we have no say other than with our vote over the government that is currently, you know, in place who decide how we're going to live and what that's going to look like. I mean, I know we have our own personal choices and our well-being comes from within ourselves, but there are, it's not fair to say that these external factors don't have an impact on us because they absolutely do. And I've been really thinking a lot about this in the past year or so about actually I can't do anything about all this stuff that's happening across the world that's having a really negative effect on my health and the health of so many people you know how, how do you feel about that as a practitioner is that something that's you've thought about yourself I'm going to throw something out there that's going to be really controversial okay. good <laughs> <laughs> in that I How do I phrase this? The suffering is good. I don't disagree. Continue. The, the, the suffering, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the suffering is necessary. And what we as individual lives these days recognize and associate and define as negative, bad, feeling weak, feeling out of, not in control, disempowered, etc is one aspect of a bigger whole and somewhere else there'll be a balancing aspect to it. There is, there is no yin without yang. So whatever it is that we might be suffering as an individual in our life here, what I remind myself is somewhere else, somewhere, something positive is happening. Something, oh, well, yeah. If I'm experiencing a negative thing, something somewhere else positive is happening because the totality of existence is in balance all the time. So okay. if I'm feeling pain, someone somewhere else is feeling the opposite of it. If I'm mm -hmm. feeling joy, someone else somewhere else, someone somewhere else is feeling sadness. That is the truth. Even, but we rarely stop ourselves when we're feeling on top of the world thinking, oh gosh, someone right now is suffering somewhere. Mm -hmm because that's just the nature of, of, of positivity. And that's just the nature of, of what we're like. Um, I know big sweeping generalizations here, but 
the, the, the bigger picture is a really important one that I use as a reminder for myself that especially when things are difficult, especially when there is, when we're really pushed to trust that something is going to get better or that the pain will go away or when we're really feeling down and out, that someone somewhere at this point in time, re- without expectation that things are going to change for me, but right now at this moment in time, someone else somewhere is having a really wonderful time. Mm. And that this is balance. And it's a really difficult practice to do because it, it requires us to acknowledge that we just have to be with whatever suffering is happening right now. Mm. To not want to pull out of the suffering and not expect that the suffering is going to end either. Mm. But to acknowledge that this suffering is coming, is, is, is here and is enabling somewhere right now the opposite of suffering. Mm. I hear what you're saying. I don't disagree. Suffering is a window to ultimate peace, which is a big conversation, isn't it? But it's true. You know, without suffering and surrender, you know, that deep peace, that deep joy that is our true inherent nature. That's how we access it, really, through those through those windows. What I'm hearing you say, what I'm feeling is, I feel slightly out of balance because the world around me is effed up and it is effed up. And I know there's lots of joy and good and kind things happening in the world. And I always say that to my kids when they're feeling a bit like overwhelmed by the news. Like in our little town, there's been some quite nasty stabbings and, you know, a really high profile politician was murdered two weeks ago. There's a lot of spiking happening in nightclubs And my kids are saying to me, I don't feel safe. Mm. And I say, and one of the things I say to them is, I understand you need to try and keep yourself safe, but also know it's news because it's rare. You know, that is rare. If it wasn't so rare, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be in the news. It would be just like, well, that's what happens. I don't know that they can always hear that because they personally at this moment don't feel safe. And so I'm saying, I feel right now, the world around me doesn't feel in a good place. It feels very tilted towards darkness. And so that has an effect on my balance internally. So as a practitioner of acupuncture, qigong, meditation, what do you, how do you, how do you look at that? How do you address that, you know, within your practice? You know, is it, is it the surrender or is there something more to that? As myself, in my own life, I deal with it by imposing limits on my interaction with what I know can pull me down. Mm. And, and it will be, you know, not watching the news and it will be um, choosing specifically the people I want to have conversations with. Mm. Um, the places that I will go to, the shops mm. that I'm going to choose to go to, um, mm. and limiting the number of things that I do. You know, but I am in a privileged position where I have the choice. Mm. I don't live in an urban environment 
I don't have kids who have to go to school. Um, I, and, and it's a choice that I've made. And I know that it's not, it's always easier when to, to, to disengage when you're already away um, from a busy environment. So I don't, I don't see that as necessarily something that everybody can do. Mm-hmm. I think if, if somebody came to me as a patient or as a student with that situation, I would go back to the practices and, and focus on being in the body, in the movement, in the breath, in the practice, and not try to define what the outcome will be for that person. Mm-hmm. In the way that we all know what we need and we gravitate to the things that will provide us that salvation. If someone's asking me for help, the, the, the answer will come somewhere through the things I can help with. Mm. And I will rely on the magic that's in these practices without, without any expectation that I can tell them what, what the outcome is going to be because I can't. Mm. I can only hope and pray that what I trust these practices to be able to deliver will deliver. And most of the time they do. And And we can't go on. No, I was going to say, as I'm listening to you speak, I'm just, I'm reminding myself that we can't affect the outside world until our inner state is in balance anyway. So you know, we have to, as you say, return to our practices to find our inner state of balance. And then from that place of safety, balance, surrender, whatever we want to call it, we can then have more of an impact on the external world. So, and and I guess, again, I would say something similar to a client. I would say, how much news are you watching? <laughs> Turn it off for a week. You know, how who are you hanging around with? You know, in an ideal world, if we're in a state of bliss or a complete acceptance, we can be around people of all states of mind. But when we're not in that state, we have to be a bit more cautious and careful around where we put our energy. And I guess for me, these practices of yoga, tai chi, mindfulness, all of that, they give us the tools to become aware of when we're not in that place. Daniel, what, I can see you're going to jump in. I just in. think as well, it's really important you know, to remember that all of these practices, all of these traditions came about by people wanting to explore ways to work with their suffering. So what we're hearing and seeing now feels like news on drugs, doesn't it? It's literally you're bombarded. You can't get away from it. And it's really Mm. difficult to actually cut yourself off from it because the media is in every part of our lives you know we switch on our computer we switch on our phone we go outside it's in our face you know Mm. and you have to you have to be really really quite decisive and and devious to actually try and avoid it and I think you know it's very easy to get caught up now in actually you know there are horrific things happening but there's been horrific things happening since mankind invented itself. <laughs> you know? And those things are going to continue to happen. They just feel like at the moment, for me personally, it feels like there's a lot of agendered information being put out there 
to make people think in certain ways. And it's very easy to get dragged into those rabbit holes of belief when actually it's about what's behind this, who, who, who's profiteering, who's making out of this. And, Ju, I completely agree with you, actually. It's something that my teacher, Lisa Kaylee Isley, taught me, is whenever there's suffering, there is always something good going else somewhere else in the world, and it's really important to recognise that. And you might not even know it, but to know that it's happening is trust within yourself to know that it will happen again and it is happening now. And, mm. yeah, I think that's how I, at the moment, am navigating this really tough time, which we're all experiencing mm. in all different ways. Because mm. karma, people often talk about karma as like linear in our lives because we can mm -hmm. define it and give it a context and it's, it's, you know, it's got a beginning, a middle and an end. But karma operates on a much wider scale it's simultaneous mm. across all life forms and all time and space continuums but also across a period of time you know what we might be paying for now could be the cost of everything good that had that's come before and 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 we don't see that because we're forward-looking animals mm. yeah um, and, and it's a difficult thing to accept. It's really hard to accept that. And, and I, I don't know how I would even begin to contemplate the thought that things are only ever going to get worse. If it came to that, you know, if I sat down to myself and say, okay, everything that's the best is in the past. And actually now it's just, we're going to, it's payback time. And mm. everything you're doing from now on is only going to be payback. That's going to, that's a pretty fucking, sorry. <laughs> don't, worry. don't worry you can you can say it's fine <laughs> that's, a pretty, that's a pretty depressing heavy thought um but it's an interesting one to use as a practice especially at a time like this in the year at autumn where we do see nature at least in the northern hemisphere really pulling down and being heavy and being quite brutal Mm. Now that's interesting you say that because actually that's where I am right now I feel very introspective and I always am at this time of year I get very introspective I get very thoughtful and I can get a bit down and I have to really work hard not to go down the abyss so talk to us a little bit about that was one of the things I loved in the book also with the stuff around practices in the seasons so mm. how is it that you do that with your your is it a hybrid practice would you say qigong and yoga together yeah I love it I love it. I I really have to take the the weather into in, into account because we're so immediately affected by it. Um, and even on a clear, cool, bright autumn day, there is still a different scent in the air than on a spring day, mm. and we can't deny that. You know, the air is different, the humidity is different, and the way we breathe as a result is different. And so what I do is I sort of use the characteristics of what's around me in nature and language accordingly, pace accordingly. Um, maybe, you know, in autumn, do a bit more pranayama, do a bit more exhale-focused practices, um, focus on what really is of value that's really important go back to basics and really reinforce the basics and things like that because 
if we look at the metal element and, and the autumn time, it's not just about heaviness and downness. It's also about preserving what is absolutely essential to survive the winter so that we can come back to life again in the spring. Mm. So there is a real um, shedding. There's a shedding of all the superfluous, nice to have things. We only hold on to what is absolutely essential because that's what's going to be useful when rebirth comes in the springtime. And if you think about, you know, the, the nature of nature and how it is cyclical, that's exactly what a, a, a plant does, isn't it? Is it gets rid of everything and goes back to those bare essentials of the bulb or the seed or the, the growth that it's come from to be able to replenish itself again. Yeah. And, yeah. And, as, and as human beings, how we just don't give ourselves time to do that on a daily basis, on a yearly basis, on a, you know, on, on any kind of cyclical process, because so often we don't have time to step away from that treadmill that we feel like we're on and actually realise really what is happening. Electricity and light have really screwed, it, screwed that up for us. <laughs> mm. I was listening we... to a really interesting podcast. Um, have you heard of Charlie Morley? Have you come across him before? He's written a book called Wake Up to Sleep. And he was saying about it was in the Industrial Revolution that our sleep patterns changed massively because electricity or gas-powered lights at the time were able to allow people to work longer. So we used to sleep twice a day up until that point. We used to sleep in the evening and then have a sort of mid-afternoon sleep. And that was got rid, gotten rid of in the Industrial Revolution so we could work longer. Yeah. my god i did not know that yeah it's amazing isn't it that's why i want an afternoon nap every day absolutely yeah yeah well in chinese medicine the afternoon between sort of two o'clock and five o'clock is also water element time so sleep rest quiet lying down yeah um yeah we're naturally sort of sleepy after lunch that's a really great time for a restorative practice or a yin practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you're teaching, Jude, do you, how does your class, how would that look? If you, do you blend the Qigong in with the yoga practice or do you teach them as two separate practices? I blend them. I do pure Qigong classes and then there's always Qigong in my yoga classes, except I don't call them it's Qigong. <laughs> You've been outing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, they love it. No, I tend to use, in the yoga classes, I tend to use Qigong as warm-ups because there are some really wonderful Qigong exercises just to get the tendons and the ligaments and the joints going before you start going into big forward folds and deep lunges and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it just gets the blood flowing a little bit, warms up the body. Qigong is a really great way of just getting that qi circulating because qi is carried in the blood and circulated mm -hmm. through the blood. And if you look at the map of the meridian lines on the body, you'll see very similarities with the nervous system as well as the fascia trains mm. um, and, and how they're mapped up. And if you look at the various massage lines in like Thai massage and you compare them to meridian lines, you'll see that they, they're very, very similarly located as well. Mm. So um, I use Qigong in, in my yoga classes to, to start people going. And then we'll go into, into more classic flow. 
Um, I've always used intention as a very, very strong way, uh, as a very starting point and uh, an underlying theme through every single class. And I don't tell them what the intention should be, but I give them space to find an intention for their class and for their practice that day, because without that, we're just moving and breathing, you know. Um, mm. And with, with Qigong especially, we start with intention. The idea is that, that, that we channel the energy through the body simply by thinking it. And they recognize, Chinese medicine recognizes that there is energy contained in the brain. But interesting that if you notice, there's no meridians in the brain. The brain is not seen as, as an organ meridian in Chinese medicine. Mm. Um, uh, but it, there is energy. And in the practice of Qigong, we used our capacity to think, to channel the energy to what we want to do. And there is this commonly used phrase, you know, energy flows where attention goes. And that really is um, a really good starting point for Qigong. Because we can, we can try something now. I don't know if you and your listeners would want to try something. I'd love to. Yeah. 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 Love you know, to. If you just sort of like relax your hands. Yeah. But leave them softly open. And we're going to imagine that as you exhale, you're going to make a soft fist with your hands. But you don't do it. You just keep your hands relaxed. So when you exhale, you just imagine your hands curling into soft fists. And you can feel the energy flow into the hands. As you exhale, without moving the fingers or anything, just imagine you're curling your fingers into a soft fist. And if you just follow the sensation of the breath into the hands, imagining the hands curling into a fist, Tell me how you feel. Tell me what's happening in your hands. I can feel. It's almost as though my hands feel like they want to do that. But it's almost as though it feels like it's happening, but I'm not physically yeah. moving. Uh-huh. There's a lot of um, movement in my hands. I can feel stuff happening under the skin it's like a tingling word mm. that's not quite the right word but for me anyway but it's almost like i've got a hand inside my hand that's how i would describe it yes yeah that's moving. weird yeah. and that was simply by imagining it and guiding mm. your attention down there mm. and that's one of the practices from the the singyi chuan tradition of, of qigong where we the practice is called exhale to close your hands exhale to close hands and it's a way of bringing energy into hands so for massage therapists anywhere if you're listening to this this is a really good one um, to warm your hands up and i suppose that principle actually allows then qigong in that instance to be very accessible for anybody because actually you don't physically need to be able to move your hands it could be the the stored memory of being able to move your hands, whether, you know, you may have arthritis that restricts the movement, maybe you're an amputee, you know, and you, you, you've lost one of the, the limbs or both limbs, then actually that, that stored memory of being able to do that, which is essentially what we're doing, isn't it? It's 
that neural pathway of knowing this is what it felt like. Yeah. It then allows the practice to become hugely accessible for anybody. I often tell my students, if you need to sit down when you're doing this, you can. If your arms feel tight, just put them down, put down your arms, but imagine you're still doing it. Mm. That will still get the energy flowing. You don't need to be physically doing the exercises to get the energy flowing. You can watch, you can watch someone, excuse me, you can watch someone doing Qigong. And if you're mentally following it and you're saying to your body, this is what I'm doing, you will still get the benefit of, of the practice. Absolutely. What's that expression? Where energy goes, where your attention rests. Energy flows where your attention goes. Yeah, that's it. That's very powerful. When you were speaking about setting the intention at the beginning of your class, I really enjoyed that part in your book. I made a note about it, page 25. <laughs> I'm not going to read them all out because we want people to buy this book, don't we? But he, you say that there's an exercise to do before you step onto your mat. Oh, yeah. Or, you're anywhere and it says i'm going to read a couple of them I, daniel and i do this also actually at the beginning of our classes i think it's really important you ask yourself where am i stable right now it's a great question because actually just thinking about that now i'm thinking where am i stable right now i'm like i'm not really sure i need to think about that one and then it opens up a whole bigger question around why aren't i stable and what do i need to do to be stable and why don't i feel stable um and what aspects of my life am i flexible uh, what would break me? I think that's a brilliant question. Such a clever question. Where do I hide when life hits me hard? Well, I know that that's work. That's what I do. I just go and work harder. But there's lo there's loads of questions like that that are really open up a, a the potential for a big inner dialogue mm. and uh, some powerful learning. I feel that for a lot of yoga teachers it can go into a bit of a performance and it can go into a major broadcast when we step on to mm -hmm. this I'm going to teach a class mode. And mm -hmm. starting with these questions immediately pulls us back into, for me, into a more humble state and to say, mm -hmm. okay, I am a human, I'm in this body, I am bringing all of who I am into this room too and acknowledging that I'm going to be impacting these people's lives. How? I will never know. But if I know what's happening in me, what comes out of my mouth as I'm teaching and how I touch and how I walk and how I look at somebody is going to be at least authentic um, and honest and, and not just a, 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 a class that they could potentially get on YouTube. Mm. I think you've touched on a really important point there too that has come up a lot in our podcast is the way that yoga or these traditional practices are taught is very much avoidant of actually any true spirituality, this spiritual bypassing or spiritual whitewashing that seems to happen a lot now using just elements of the practice and actually not realizing fundamentally that these these practices are about compassion they're about understanding yourself and they're about facilitating change within yourself and within the world that you live in and if you're not doing that then i take then you're not doing yoga or you're not doing qigong or you're not doing tai chi you know it, they, they, they become just a performative exercise that can be done down any gym. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. 
And it's really difficult because people have so it's 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 become so profitable though. Mm. And that's when we start to lose our way. So, but so what if people don't want to come to my class if they don't want to hear about nonviolence? So it's, my class is not for them. Mm. I mean, I don't give a lecture on 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 all these on a daily basis, but I, in my classes, I give people time to reflect. I give people time to talk about what it is that they may want to talk about that day at the end of the class without it becoming a full sharing circle because nobody paid to come for that. <laughs> but I think it's important to give people time and to give moments of silence. Mm. And what I do like about the Qigong practice is a lot of these movements are repetitious. So you don't need to be constantly instructing. You can show the movement and then as they're doing the repetitions, there is a moment of silence and they can then go through their experience of whatever it is that they might be dealing with in their head or in their body that day for, it might be 30 seconds, it might be a minute, but they've got that time, which I find in a lot of flow classes, there's just too much talking going on, too much fancy sequencing, that there is no time to actually reflect while you're doing the practice. Mm. That's so powerful and so true that that giving space is everything you know the space to notice how you're feeling the space to stay in the moment because if you're constantly having to respond to an instruction you can't be present because you're projecting into your next place i want you to bring up sorry go on carry on if you just if you think about why we often go to yoga classes to get away from all the noise that's happening outside Mm -hmm. and then we come into a class and all we have is 60 minutes of someone shouting how to move yeah, 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 that's so true. And that will be quite difficult for some people to hear, actually, because they'll be thinking, oh, I love my dynamic yoga class where the teacher talks all the way through. And I think it's fair to just say, you know, that's fine. We are where we are. There's not better. You spoke earlier about the web of karma. My God, I want to talk about that another time because that's a huge conversation, which I really, really love. Um, in the same way, we're, we're all on the web and, and, and it's three dimensional. So there's no better or worse. You are where you are, where you need to be. But I invite everybody to try being in a space that allows you to just pause and feel fully. And you can't feel fully if you aren't present. Mm. I read a really amazing um, blog post by, um, do you know Zephyr Wildman? Oh, yes. I love her recent post. Yeah, it was amazing, wasn't it? really was amazing it was about the feedback that she'd received from different students who found her class to not be the yoga that they was expecting it to be and I mean Zephyr's pretty out there in terms of her you know she's not afraid to say what she needs to say and it was just I was reading it and I was just like Yes, tick that box, tick that box, tick that box. Yes, I've heard that. You know, I've seen people give me those looks (laughs) when I talk about certain things or, you know, and it is just the way that our modern yoga practice has evolved that is losing its tradition. Mm. And it's so, I I mean, we'll put it in the show notes because I think it's a brilliant it's a really, really, really brilliant read. What did you think about it, Jude? Did you? 
I fully agree with everything that she said on there. Um, and that's always, fortunately, you know, I think for me, I've, I, I accepted that for myself a long time ago. Um, there were people who would come for some reason and there were people who would not come for some reason. And I recognized a long time ago that I'm never going to be everybody's teacher. And I gave up the ambition of popularity a long time ago. And what has turned out is there is, a, there is a type of person who will come to my classes and they love it. And I love teaching them as a result of it. And it's not going to be the type of person who wants to go into headstands every three minutes or handstands on the way out of the chaturanga or whatever it might be, because that's just not how I teach. Um, but the people who do come and enjoy my classes are people who are very sensitive to what's happening to the person on the next mat and will notice if something's not right in the room or you know, will notice if my voice sounds slightly different today because I've had a shit day. It's, it's, it's that kind of sensitivity that I want to cultivate and that's what will, I, I will attract, I guess. Um, I don't market that as, you know, no hand sense in my class, <laughs> which is not true at all because I have 83 year old women going up into handstands in my class. Mm-hmm. But it's not, it's, it's just, it comes down to, I think the approach, the tone we set, but also feedback. I've learned, I guess, to grow a pretty thick skin over the years I've been teaching and just accept that, yeah, I'm not gonna be for everybody and it's okay. Because I can't be everything, you know, I mean, hell, I can't even live and uphold all the yamas and niyamas on a daily basis. So I'm just going to do with one thing at a time. <laughs> today, I'm, I'm going to do the not lying thing. Or today, I'm not going to do the non-greedy thing. And that's okay. And that's all I can manage sometimes. Hmm. That sounds perfect. I, I really enjoyed your part in the book about ethics. Hmm. Really interesting. It's something Danny and I discuss a lot. Um, we spoke. We speak a lot, also, Daniel, don't we, about um, what you were talking about around. You know, it's not a popularity contest, and the tone we try and set in the class. It's certainly not about making money. You know, there has to be an exchange, but it's it's about you know holding a space that is sensitive, compassionate, and loving. But I really love what you you spoke about ethics. And I'm, I'm just going to read out the ethics that you've written down because I think they're worth mentioning because there are ethics around how we, hopefully, as teachers, we think about what we're bringing to the room. It's really important. It's about kindness, discipline, gratitude, respect, mindfulness, honesty, responsibility, virtuous sexuality, voluntary simplicity. I really love that one. Contentment, study, humility. I just think they're incredible. You know, are these ethics that you particularly have pulled out and lived by, or is it something that you learn or were taught? I mean, I first came across the 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 non-use of Sanskrit to describe the yamas and yamas through Max Strom mm. because he made it a real point of not using Sanskrit in his class, and it was quite controversial at the time when he started doing that. Um, and then he led me on to this book called Religions of the World by Houston Smith that does a comparative 
uh, analysis of the various big religions and the not so big religions in the world and what they teach. And all the religions, if you strip away the labels, they teach those same things. Mm. There's exactly those same types of values that are taught. And whatever you want to call them, whatever language you want to use, if you strip away the labels that divide the world today, that what that those are the things that lie underneath. And I also say in the book, you know, these are things that I feel useful and important to me, but make up your own. We all, you know, and there's quite a long list, but let's make up our own of our own little list of three things that we feel are core to our ethical um, stance. Even if it's not to life in general, at least when we walk into a room, mm. you know, because if somebody then comes up and asks for a refund after class, how are we going to respond? From mm. which aspects of our personality are we going to say yes or no from? Mm. And that's important. Um, and yeah, it's, it's not something that is important to... To, to, to bear in mind when you are taking a posture, perhaps. But it, you could say that it can be in terms of being kind to yourself and not hurting yourself, mm. being content with the fact that you can't do a headstand, you know, not getting excited about the sexy person next to you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty um, interesting as, a, as, as an area. To, for, for self-reflection. And again, all these practices are really opportunities for self-reflection and self-knowledge. So anything that we can add into it is going to be really useful. And I would say that the other things I talk about in my book as well, whether it's the sequencing or whether it's the theming for various seasons, what aspect of what of the five elements you want to use, which meridians you want to work with. All these things are in us and happening within us all the time. None of us is starting from a still point. Mm. Every single person is already in the flow on a path going somewhere. So How we choose to color and shape what is already changing is where we can influence it. And the influence might be quite short term. It might last a day. It might suddenly trigger a whole life change. We don't know. And as teachers and as, as practitioners, you know, we hold a lot more potential and influence than we ever realize. You might think, oh, I'm only a student coming into a yoga class. But the way you park your car outside and the way you shut the door and the way you spoke to the receptionist may have profound effects that none of us will ever know and think about before, mm -hmm. during or after the class. Um, and as teachers, definitely the way you look at someone. I was speaking to a friend recently who went for a pedicure and she said, oh, she was waiting in the sitting room and the, and, and the woman who's gonna do her pedicure came up the stairs from her lunch break and was going to get the room ready. 
looked at her waiting in the sitting room and just went, ah, like not very enthusiastically. So my friends are, you know, a lady in her 60s. And so maybe the practitioner, the, 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 the therapist or what, the beautician um, thought, oh dear, here's another old lady that I'm going to have to make her feet pretty again or, what, or whatever it might be that she may have been thinking. But the fact that my friend had gone to get a pedicure to make herself feel better about herself, but then this woman walking through the hallway, walking through the waiting area, just did this big sigh of, of disappointment when she looked at her just ruined her day ruined it the practitioner probably never thought twice and probably didn't realize that that it was noticed it was just a big sigh but this thing of oh gosh i'm here i have to do this again and oh god look who's in the waiting room it's it's um, really difficult to constantly monitor ourselves but there is a responsibility there that we have chosen to take on as teachers and as practitioners of this, of, of these traditions, I would say. So. Absolutely. And isn't that where, you know, uh, the, the practices that we do and the lives that we lead and what we do off of our mats, where actually we spend 99% of our time. Yeah. That's where the real practice comes in. Yeah. I always say this to my students, you know, you're not here to become good at yoga. You're not here to become good at Qigong. You're here to become good at your life, at, your life outside of this room. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I don't really care what you do in this room on your mat. In a way, I say that sort of slightly throwaway. Yeah. I don't really care if you can't do the postures. That's okay. But the fact that you're here means something to you. So let's think mm -hmm. about what it is that this is for in your life. You don't have to tell me, but just remind yourself why it is that you're here. And if it's just about getting out of the house for an hour, so be it, it's cool. Mm -hmm. But as long as you know why you're here, that's all I care about. Mm. Yeah. I think um, the whole idea of thinking of the ethics around how we conduct ourselves is a vitally important part of our role as teachers mm. um, and I like I like how you um, transpose that also to the student in the way that they perhaps behave ethically towards themselves during their practice oh, it's yeah. something it's something um, it's more and more being brought to the fore now as we see the unethical way many people have conducted themselves over the past few decades and probably longer um, in our yoga communities um, and it's quite heartbreaking isn't it Daniel so to see this being discussed in your book and was really heartwarming yeah I've been really fortunate I've had lots of opportunities to learn from my students I've had a student who would only ever wear long sleeve t-shirts even at the height of summer and I never understood why but then after a year she got the courage to pull up her sleeves and she used to self-harm and all the scars were there. Mm. Yeah. And, and these, are the, these are the ways that we're affecting people. And we may not need to know an answer straight away. Why should we ever expect someone to be able to put their hips the right way 
after one class or after however many classes. Mm. They will they will the benefits will reveal themselves to the student when the student's ready. And all we can do is just be there for them without any kind of judgment or expectation. Mm. Mm. I was just thinking, you know, Dawn, in terms of what you were saying earlier about maybe revisiting those ethics within you and actually how do how is you know your feeling towards what's going on societally at the moment you know actually how's that affecting you because you can't you can't change anyone else's outlook or perception but what you can do is allow those to be a barometer back to you to Mm -hmm. show you actually well you know do I need to be more compassionate to myself because I can't change what's going on outside. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I think there's definitely a sense of um, self-reflection for me that needs to happen. I'm in that phase, though, as we were speaking about being autumn, I'm very introspective right now, and I'm very aware of what's happening in the world, and it's making me very sad. Mm. So what I'm feeling coming up for me is lots and lots of compassion for the world, which I'm finding quite, I only, I'm, to be honest, I feel quite overwhelmed by it all. I feel emotionally overwhelmed, quite tearful a lot of the time. I look around and I just see so much pain and so much fear and so much division and anger. And it just heart is breaking my heart. I can feel the suffering of others. And it's, you know, normally for me, I can feel the suffering and hold that very well in my center. And just hold it in my heart and bring it into meditation but i'm finding it's coming a bit like a heavy weight so i kind of have to look at where am i out of balance like why am i feeling like that what do i need to do to bring myself back into that place and you know as you say daniel perhaps looking around the ethics and the so on around my own practice will be helpful Joe, it's been so interesting to speak to you. I'm really aware we've taken up an awful lot of your time. Let's just, we have two more questions. One is, what is your hope for the book? What do you, what do you hope for it when you dream of your, your child going out into the world? What do you dream? <laughs> I hope people, and, and this conversation has been really, really meaningful and has really touched me deeply and very humbled and really grateful um, for your feedback and I'm very encouraged that the bit that I have been most nervous about in this book is this bit at the front where I talk about ethics and where mm-hmm. I talk about things that are not specifically to do with Qigong exercises and not about how to sequence mm-hmm. postures but I feel mm-hmm. that it's absolutely critical um, in approaching a tradition like this, which ultimately mm. is about teaching self-awareness and how we want to channel our energy in our being and being alive, living our lives is a way of channeling our energy. So I'm really grateful that this has been a section of the book that you've really picked up on and felt to be useful. And mm. I would say that I hope that people who are not yoga teachers who are curious about Qigong um, would also will also find it useful and interesting mm. oh you know that part of the book for me was very important I think it's 
added a real depth to it. So, you know, thank you for it's always the sign of a good book when it's authentic and it felt very authentic, very came from a place of of knowing versus performing. So you mm -hmm. weren't just saying that you knew it. I could we could tell that from reading. And yeah. Daniel, you always ask our last question. So I'm gonna let yeah, you Yeah, it's a question I ask everyone because I think it's vital <laughs> for us to 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 be honest in the ways that um we do what we do but how do you take care of yourself i take care of myself by going swimming in the sea oh. that is the one thing that for me always solves all my problems if i can go to the beach and swim in the sea it'll be okay and i've been doing a lot of that <laughs> this year <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing a lot of that, you know, um, living through a divorce um, is, is uh, tense and difficult, even though it's a friendly one. It's a disentangling of years of life together and all the rest of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm um, having to, to carry on and evolve out of a relationship while maintaining a business and all the property and all the animals and all that can be challenging, um, mm -hmm. let alone the very thought of attempting to go out there and start dating again which at the moment is just ah <laughs> um so if i can go and swim in the sea life is good for me that's how i look after myself there are all the practices which i i do when i can and i will not be the only teacher out there who says that i do not practice a long asana practice every single day um that's just not physically possible um I do what I can when I can, and some days I get more than others. Um, but in terms of self-care, good food and doing the things that I feel I am capable of, not really pushing myself to achieve more than I physically can at any given point in time. If, there's only, if I have three things on my to-do list and I can only do one today, I'll do the one thing and it's okay. I'll let the rest go, you know. I'm not, I'm very good at criticizing myself. I have a very, very strong inner critic. And so learning to ignore the inner critic has also been another profound act of self-kindness and self-preservation that I've learned. How wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, Dawn and I um, are swimmers ourselves, aren't we, Dawn? <laughs> I'm a paddler, a swimmer. <laughs> Although we're, we're slightly blighted, aren't we, at the moment, because we've had a sewage spilling spill near us, so all of the beaches are shut, um, which I'm starting to feel a little bit twitchy now. I'm like, <laughs> I need to get in the sea. So I had a cold shower this morning and said just to sort of like... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> You're slightly safer. <laughs> Very good. Very good. But yeah, just finding ways to be adaptive, isn't it? You know, it really is. Do what we can. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Stu, for being here today and sharing your wisdom and writing the book that I'm sure is going to be of huge support for many people. Um, it's been a real pleasure to be able to get to know you and thank you for being our guest today. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed speaking to you and the invitation stands. Anytime you two want to come to France, just call me. Mm.
that's really kind of you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dawn, as ever, for being my co-host. And we are really grateful to each and every one of you for listening today. If you've got any feedback you want to give us, then please do give us your feedback. If there's subjects you want us to talk about, let us know. If there's people that you want us to interview, then please do just drop us a message. We're more than happy to hear from you. But until next time, thank you, Drew. Thank you, Dawn. And thank you for listening.